As was mentioned earlier today, certainly what a joy and delight it is, a privilege. And perhaps brings to our mind those thoughts of Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. A sense of gladness can certainly pervade each of you and me this morning. And as we come to this part of our worship, after spirited singing, the opportunity of expressing the heartfelt appreciation and thoughts within us, we now can give some consideration for the next few moments to the Thessalonian letters. As you'll notice from our Bible reading this past week, we have devoted several days to a reading in First and Second Thessalonians. These initial thoughts of remark perhaps point us in another direction of what the lesson shall be that follows. Two particular letters of the New Testament were written to that congregation in Thessalonica. We appreciate then that that congregation occupies a rather central position mentioned not only in the book of Acts, but also, of course, these two Thessalonian letters. We immediately appreciate, as we read those eight chapters in the two books combined, that it was a congregation Paul highly commended and complimented in some ways, but they were also in some misunderstandings as well. They were beset with some failure to appreciate the thoroughness of the truth on some matters. These two books then were written to set in order those matters lacking in their understanding, and I would invite us for the next few moments this morning to use those matters to help us not only shore up our faith, but appreciate what errors that they had in mind so that you and I will never fall into that same trap. The books of First and Second Thessalonians. You'll notice their misunderstanding centrally had to do with one thought. We're going to develop that in some detail this morning. Let's begin, though, if we might, with a word of development. Setting in mind the characteristic of this congregation and appreciating the grandeur with which it began and the opportunity that it had to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It was on the second missionary journey that Paul left previous regions such as Philippi and made his way to Thessalonica in Acts 17 verses 1, 2, and 3. As he came to this region, he preached as often was his course of action, first of all to the Jews that were therein located. However, not many of them responded. But the Greeks were overjoyed at the message that Paul brought. And it says specifically that not just a few of them obeyed the gospel. In other words, we learned that there was a nucleus of the church existent in Thessalonica. And you appreciate rather readily, however, that it was not without initial difficulty. The Jews that were there in Thessalonica that did not believe, they caused havoc and caused great problems for Paul. So much so that Paul had to leave the city. He came to Berea, as you may well remember. And as that slide points out for us, even after his leaving, remember that Paul was concerned about the Thessalonian church. Would they remain loyal and faithful and true? Or would those problems from the Jews ultimately cause such difficulties among them that they would not be able to continue? You'll notice that Paul was so concerned about them that he sent Timothy to find out firsthand about their welfare. And initially, Timothy was slow in coming back to Paul, and Paul was very anxious and concerned. Ultimately, though, in 1 Thessalonians 3... Paul and Timothy did rejoin or reunite, and Timothy brought great news. He brought news that that congregation was continuing and that they did have many things for which they could be complimented. 
But he also brought the fact that they were in misunderstanding relative to some points. It was for that reason that Paul wrote that first Thessalonian letter. It was a letter addressed to that congregation in Thessalonica, and it intended to address those very points of misunderstanding. It was the very first letter that Paul wrote. Of all the 13 letters in the New Testament that we know he wrote, this was the first one. Written apparently about 52 or maybe 53 A.D. The book of Galatians was also very early on, but it seems to have followed the Thessalonian correspondence. As you close that slide with me then and come to what's next, let's develop that misunderstanding. That is, let's try to understand what it was that was their failure and see if you and I can appreciate it very powerfully. What it was that troubled the Thessalonians so greatly was the issue surrounding the second coming of Christ. You and I know that that is a central subject in the New Testament. It occupies almost, on average, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament. The second coming of Jesus is critical for understanding. And yet the Thessalonians had some misgivings about it. You'll notice immediately that we can develop that thought by observing this. It's frequently useful to note what the key words are in any given biblical book because that often sets before you what really can be kept in mind as far as the major thesis of the book. For the book of 1 Thessalonians, as well as the second one as well, the word comfort occupies a central position. Seven times in this short little book, we find Paul making mention of comfort. Immediately, he states the fact that he himself enjoyed comfort by virtue of their faithfulness. Chapter number 1. Furthermore, you'll notice he highlights in chapter 3 the appreciation of, again, the degree of comfort they could enjoy from one another. And then in chapter 4, verse 18, comfort that they were able to possess as a result of the second coming of Christ. As you look at all of them, you'll immediately observe that there is another word, though, that occurs very often. And to put the two together, it really does solidify in our mind the, the virtue and the feature of these, of these two books. That other book, that other word, I should say, is the word come. Fifteen times in these two books, the word come or some noun form of it appears. If you put the two together, there is a great comfort attached to the second coming of Christ. And sadly, the Thessalonians didn't have that comfort because they misunderstood it. Paul wrote these letters to clarify in their mind and set straight those misunderstandings. You'll notice this following development. Here was what they thought. The Thessalonians were under the impression that the second coming of Christ was very soon to take place. That is to say, they thought that it was almost immediately going to occur at any time. And as a result of that thought, Paul had to write these letters to help them appreciate the fact that he never said that. In fact, in chapter number 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul even directly said that somebody had written a letter to the Thessalonians. And in that letter, the claim had been made that Jesus' second return was a very imminent matter. Paul again wrote to them and said, I never said that. Wasn't it true on that occasion that he informed them that the second coming was something about which much could be said, but as far as it being soon, he had some of these thoughts to say. 
First of all, chapter 1, verses 8 and following of 1 Thessalonians, it is important to wait for that second coming of Christ. Don't think that it's going to be tomorrow. It could be. But they were laboring under the oppression that it was needfully the case. It was going to be soon. Secondly, you'll notice that it was an event that would be with great joy and also great glory. Chapter, nine, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It was to be a monumental event. Furthermore, you'll notice in chapter 5, verse 2, it would occur suddenly. There will be no signs of that event. It's not as if there's any portrayal of any means whereby that event shall take place. It's not that one can look for earthquakes and signs in the celestial bodies of the heavens. There will be no signs of it. Just like a thief that comes in the night. Isn't it true that all that sounds much like what our Savior decreed back in Matthew 24 relative to that event? As you and I look further, the impressiveness then of chapter 5 is this, one must always be ready, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Since we don't know when it'll be and since it comes as a thief in the night, the only way to be ready is to stay ready. That involves being sober. That means of good judgment and always abstaining from wine. The clearness and clarity of judgment then is a strong element of the provision of this First Thessalonian letter. Finally, you'll notice in Second Thessalonians that same subject takes center stage. Here, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 1. To you who are troubled, notice the Thessalonians were troubled. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. With respect to that second coming again, there's a frightful tone to it concerning those that are not obedient. Isn't it fair then to say? Paul then gave very clear instruction in 2 Thessalonians 2 that that second coming would not happen until the revelation of the man of sin. That man of sin has now long since been revealed. And you and I now know that the second coming could take place at any moment, at any time. But for the Thessalonians, they needed not labor under the illusion that it literally had to be just at any moment in their day. There were some things according to the plan and providence of God that had to happen first. Isn't it true, then we arrive at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. I would invite you to notice that set of verses as we listen to the majestic way that Paul describes the second coming. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. But if, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." The Thessalonians were supposed to be in a position that they could enjoy comfort based on that. 
and yet they were troubled in mind. They were, in fact, dispirited in heart. And so Paul wrote these letters to help quell their misunderstandings and help them understand what it was this comfort was all about. No wonder with all that in mind, you and I now realize that it's time to develop that misunderstanding and one central feature of its consequence like this. Lucas for us read earlier from the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, a very brief text, only verse 21. That verse again reads, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. That little passage was a strong admonition to the Thessalonian congregation. This letter and other claims had troubled them relative to the second coming, and Paul now said, you need to prove all things. And you need to cling and hold tightly with great urgency to that which is good. Don't be blown about by these claims of these false teachers. Don't accept what they say relative to what they affirm concerning the second coming, for it's not true. And oh, how you and I need the strength that comes from that comfort, just like the Thessalonians needed it. Verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Let's develop that through the remainder of our time this morning. As we do that, let's begin it like this. These eight chapters in the Thessalonian books, they highlight some expected things. There is a strong encouragement, isn't there, to godly living. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, you abstain from fornication. You self-control yourself in such a way that you don't do those things that be inappropriate, sinful, and ungodly. And then he also develops the thought, the needfulness of spiritual growth. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 The needfulness of that is still as vibrant and as important today as it was then. Perhaps finally you'll notice they were supposed to have been able to rejoice in Jesus. Sadly today, due to again ignorance and due to a number of failures, there is not near as much rejoicing as there could be. But you and I have the blessedness of the truth of God. May we always rejoice in it. And may we implement it in life and recognize that because of that, you and I too can be comforted. Verse 18 of chapter 4. As we develop that verse number 21, I would ask that you do it with me like this. Prove all things. That word prove, as you can well tell, it means to discern. It means to examine. It means to give careful consideration to with the recognition that there is the possibility of error in what is out there. But there is the fact of in proof it is possible to discern the truth. Doesn't that immediately inform us of some of these comments? Once the proof is then set before us and the good is identified, it is to be held to with the utmost of strength. To hold fast, it does mean to cling tightly. It does mean to grasp on to with the intent not to let go. There is something, as you can tell here, and Paul admonished the Thessalonians, cling to that truth upon the rightful proof of God's revelation, cling to that and do not ever let it go. The urgency of that moment brings us to what's at the bottom. That good that's mentioned in verse 21 is that which is right, 
It's that which is precious. It's that which is fitting. It's that which is appropriate. Paul says then there is upon examination that which is of rightful, correct fitting. To deviate from it, Paul says to shun it. Do not cling to that. Isn't it possible then to see in that those final comments? If it's true that they were to prove all things, what was the standard by which the proof was to take place? What was the standard by which the examination was to occur? Thankfully, we have in this very book the information before us to inform us of that fact. The examination by virtue of standard was not by the Roman Caesar nor by the councils of the city of Thessalonica. Chapter 2 verse 13 informs us, For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. They had, you see, the Word of God that they had appropriately accepted, received, and believed. And Paul said, thanks be unto God for that reception. Therein lies the standard. Therein lies the means whereby proof could be done. Isn't that a wonderful passage? So much so that as you come to the bottom of that slide, the very last comment... That text before us very clearly indicates the existence of an authority. Prove all things by the authority of that which has been revealed and delivered. That today is still the critical matter troubling religion around the world, isn't it? Failure to recognize the authority. And the Thessalonians were falling into that trap. They were believing letters that weren't inspired. They were accepting truth from men who, quite frankly, were in error. And as such, they were sliding past that authority that Paul mentioned in a passage like this one. Prove all things, hold to that which is good. There were, you see, those that were portraying falsehood in ancient Thessalonica. They taught that which was not the truth of God with respect to the second coming. And Paul made mention of that very fact and urged them not to fall prey to that matter. Isn't it true at the very top of that slide, you and I are warned on so many occasions about failure to heed the authority vested in the Scriptures of God. In 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for there are many false prophets going out into the world. That falsehood and the character of that is directly the matter of failing to appreciate that authority of God. In 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, right after this statement, perhaps it's fair to begin in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Paul began, or rather Peter on that occasion says, very powerfully, in relationship to the Word of God with these memorable words, he said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Peter asserted, no doubt with a strong element of sadness, that there will be false teachers among you who will not respect the authority of the Word of God. They will choose their way. They will assert what they prefer. 
And in so doing, in so doing, they'll bring upon themselves swift destruction. Isn't it fair to say in light of that that the Thessalonian letter, Paul was greatly agitated in spirit by this congregation. And he wanted to assist them to know that truth strongly and powerfully. Develop that thought like this with me. Inasmuch as this issue of authority appears in verse number 21 of chapter 5, it's somewhat remarkable, isn't it, of how strongly and dramatically that thought occurs in so many places in the Word of God. In Acts 4 verse 7, right after the healing of that lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Solomon's porch, you may recall the trouble that came to John and to Peter as a result of that. And that trouble surrounded the thought of authority. What was the question that those officials asked of Peter and John in Acts 4-7? By what name have you done this? You see, they wanted to know who gave you the authority to do that. Of course, Peter very quickly said, It's the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 11, Acts chapter 4. And in fact, isn't it true in the very next verse, there is none other name under heaven whereby we're to be saved besides Him. As you think about other applications of that thought, Colossians 3.17. The church in Colossae was battling issues of this. It was of a different false teaching, frankly. But nonetheless, these words remain. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. That text of Colossians 3.17, doesn't it highlight whatever you do, word or deed, may it be with a thus saith the Lord at its backing, and may it be under the authority invested in a proper interpretation of the Bible. Isn't it true that we can also give thought quickly to that text in 1 Corinthians 10? Near the close of that chapter, Paul, even under the banner of this same issue and authority, highlighted even in regard to what you eat and drink, let it always be to the glory of God. As we reflect on all of those things... Put yourself back into the position for just a moment to the church in Thessalonica. Authority, doesn't it lead us to this? What is it that the Bible then has to say? Romans 4, 3, what saith the Scripture? Notice I've tried to put it in both boldface and underline so that not only we might appreciate what was hearkened in that day, but what surely comes before us today. We mustn't go beyond in any way that which the Scriptures have revealed. Notice all that they were doing, some of those false teachers of that day, was taking the message of the second coming and altering it a little, changing it somewhat. And yet in so doing, they had added into the Word of God what was not there. You and I must never go beyond it. For if we do, we put ourselves in the place of God and try to make laws where He made none. And we know that that's always a condemned thing. In 2 John 9, that very matter is explicitly told to you and to me, isn't it? Whosoever sinneth transgresseth, all th- transgresseth, transgresseth also the way of God. And in that transgression, we can see that the development is, the word identifies that those who transgress are those that go beyond. There are those that extend, if you will, beyond the authority that God has Himself revealed. And in so doing, John expressly says that they do not have Christ and they do not have God. Isn't that frightening? 
isn't it a rather sobering conclusion? That those who do this, they do not have either Christ or God. Surely the frightening character of that takes us to that next passage. What is the very next thing that Paul wrote to these brethren? Hold fast that which is good in the very next statement out of his lips in the proverbial fashion. The very next thing he wrote, abstain from all appearance of evil. These deviations from the Word of God are classified as evil. And he said, keep away from them. Abstain from them. Have no dealings with them. That word abstain is a very strong Greek verb. You can even remember some other places in the Bible in which that word is found, and it always carries with it a complete and thorough removal of that to which it's referring to. In Acts 15, 29, for example, there, after that council in Jerusalem, and it was recognized that circumcision was not something to be bound upon Christians in this modern era. He said, these things, though they knew, need to understand, to abstain from fornication and from blood, and from things strangled, and from idols. And that word abstain means not to dabble in, but to absolutely keep distance from. Abstain. And it means the same thing here. You and I can readily tell then that Paul's writings to the Thessalonians had in it a sense of urgency, a sense of dire recognition into you do not change matters concerning God's Word in the second coming or God's Word as it relates to anything else. As you and I transition to those applications today, isn't it amazing how central that thinking must be for you and me? The plan of salvation. We can't add anything to it. For if so, we are absolutely not abstaining from what's evil, and we bring ourselves under the very condemnation of God the attribute of the worship of the church, we dare not tamper with it. For if so, when we recognize God only authorizes those five things that He has so clearly specified, if we add anything to it, be it musical instruments or otherwise, we are under the absolute umbrella of the condemnation of God. We've seen that portrait in the Old Testament. We've seen it set forth in so many times even in the New Testament. To you who are troubled, rest with us. What was troubling the Thessalonians? Changing the matters concerning what God had said. And any troubling of it had brought them into discomfort, not comfort. Today, how peaceful and how comforted you and I could be when we realize God's truth and the need to hold fast to it. May you and I always hold fast to that truth He's revealed. And that truth is so sweet. It's so pure and simple. And it is that very matter that opens up in that first and second Thessalonian letter. Though it's Paul's earliest writings, we see in it a man convicted of that truth and one whose love for the souls of Thessalonica led him to write to them in urgency on these same matters. When we think about the church of today and how that indeed, it is that glorious organization purchased by the sweet blood of Christ, Acts 20, 28. It is the very one through whom glory to God is directed, Ephesians 3, 21. It is that very organization which is the only saved on earth, as we read in Ephesians 5, 23. Today, as we come near the close of our lesson this morning, to think about the Thessalonian congregation, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 
those words are as meaningful today as they ever were then. Perhaps in conclusion to the lesson, here's one final slide. One final slide to challenge us to reflect on at least in a broad brush stroke some of what we have appreciated through these letters this morning. The second coming of Jesus is a vital matter. For on that occasion, when it occurs, there will immediately follow a judgment. You and I know that at that judgment, the standard that shall be held up is this one. And so whether it be the second coming, the doctrine of the church, the characteristic of the Godhead, all of that shall be held up and your life and mine will be judged in accordance to it. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There will be much good mentioned that day, the good of the saints and the good of the faithful and the good of the obedient. But sadly enough, there will be far more not good mentioned that day, for so many shall be found wanting and lacking and regretful and disobedient. May you and I hold fast that which is good, and in so doing, may we abstain from all appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. This very day, as you analyze your life and as I do the same for mine, where do you stand relative to that authority of God? Can't we be eternally thankful and grateful that the authority has been presented? We aren't left to our own devices. We aren't left to our own preferences. We're left to a, what saith the Scripture, Romans 4, 3. Today, if you're not in the fold of safety... If you have never rendered initial obedience to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, realize it is His call, not mine. He is the one calling you through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. He is the one that's directing those words of invitation to you in which He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11.28 This very day, the plan of salvation, again, to which we'd never tamper, it simply reads, Hear the gospel. Hearing demanded, of course, in the wording of Romans 10, verses 13 and 14. Believe Jesus indeed to be the Son of God, that belief highlighted in John 8, 24. Appreciate the need for repentance, to turn from sin, to turn from a way of iniquity, that repentance demanded in Luke 13, 5. Confess the sweet name of Jesus, the unassailable name of God as the Son of God, that confession demanded in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And then be baptized humbly, submissively, and simply for the remission of your sins. Acts twenty two sixteen. This very day, if you have attended to that need, but you have begun to question the authority of God, maybe in time you've acted in a public way disgracefully, brocking and reproach upon yourself and on the church that Christ died to purchase, we'd be happy to pray with you today. And much celebration will happen, not only here but in heaven, Luke 15, 7, as a result of your coming forward and requesting the prayers of forgiveness. Today, if we could be of help to anyone in the audience in any of these ways, don't delay, but please, why not come even now while together we stand together and sing.